When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. Wait a minute. I've heard that before. That's the note Jeremy wrote to me in my yearbook in the sixth grade. How'd you even know that? Because it's from Geico. Yeah, yeah wait, here it is. Dear Luke, have a great summer. P.S. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. Love, Jeremy. Geico's had this tagline for years because we help save people money. So wait, you're saying Jeremy copied you? <laughs> yeah, that actually does sound like something the J-Man would do. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. Hello Bulls fans and welcome to another episode of Bulls HQ. Thank you for joining me and hope you're all doing well out there in Bulls Nation. We're back for another show this week and so is Zach Levine making his long-awaited debut against the Detroit Pistons tonight. So we're recording this straight after the game and to help me discuss Levine's return, not only against the Pistons, but I guess moving forward in the second half of the season, I've got Kevin Ferrigan, host of the Nothing But Nylon podcast, joining me today to talk Levine as well as those trade or Miritich trade rumors that are circulating. So Kevin, thanks for joining me, mate. Thanks for having me on. Always, uh, always good to chat with you. Might be the first time I've had you on Bulls HQ. Obviously, we talked in the uh, the Podman days, but is it the first time on on Bulls HQ? It feels like it is. I, I think so. I don't I don't recall being on the the new uh, the new podcast. So um, I'm happy to to make my debut. It feels like old times. <laughs> Good to have you on, and, and you're making your Bulls HQ debut. And uh, Zach Levine made his Bulls debut today. We we just uh, finished watching that game and. He had a good offensive performance, and I, I stress the offensive work because I know if I don't put that in, you're definitely going to pull me up on it. Yes, as I did on uh, on Twitter. <laughs> I, yeah, exactly. Uh, um, yeah, the he did. He you know he was about ex- as expected um, on offense, and maybe even a little bit better than expected given the injury that he had. Um, you know, it's always dicey seeing guys come back from that, but he definitely looked like he had his his bounce and his burst, uh, both, uh, back. So that's definitely a good sign. He's, he's not, you know, he's not much of anything if he doesn't have those things. So, uh, definitely good that he, uh, that he was able to, to showcase that and his 
shooting stroke looks as good as it uh, as it did in uh, his days in Minnesota. So, um, you know, those are the positives for sure. Yeah, definitely. So that the Bulls definitely kept him under that minutes restriction, that twenty minute um, restriction that was going to be applied. So he only played the nineteen minutes. But uh, he had 14 points in those 19 minutes, making five of his nine shots, three of his four threes, and looked very smooth out there from deep, running off screens and, and running into those threes. And, and like you said, looked very fluid out there from an athletic perspective. So obviously we need to see a little bit more of him before we can sort of determine if he's fully back athletically. But I mean, from a straight line perspective, it certainly looks like that's the case. We'll be... I want to see him laterally how he's moving, but um, yeah, he did look really nice out there and... and he still pops athletically out there on the court. So a very nice offensive performance, as we I guess we expected his defense. Well, he was never really a good defender, so we can't expect him in his first game back to be much on defense. But um, he got torched a little bit out there when he was on the court. But offensively, he looked really nice. And, and with Dunn and Markkinen next to him, that, that three... Those three together, at least in the first quarter, they really complemented each other well out there. Did, did, did you like their pairing? Um, initially on the court from what we saw today yeah I, I thought he I thought the the initial group looked good I mean it helps when you make every shot that you take which um <laughs> was <laughs> the bulls are doing yeah that, that was a it was quite a hot start uh you know of course they just about every shot the pistons took they also made so it was, there wasn't much of a of a you know they didn't get much benefit in terms of uh, margin there but um the the offense at least looked looked really good um I think it'll take you know, like you mentioned, Levine has never been uh, a good or even just just regular bad defender. He's always been pretty terrible. But uh, so it, it'll take it'll even if he was a good defender, it would take some time for him to integrate into a new system and uh, get used to playing with a new set of guys and communicating with them and all that sort of thing. Um, and you know, you add add to that that he's never been a, a very good defender at all. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how, how that, that all shakes out. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, the next 40 or so games for, for the Bulls will be really interesting just from that perspective alone, just seeing how Zach Levine reintegrates into the NBA world, not only or the NBA world, but also how he sort of figures to fit into this team. And I guess because we've only got 19 minutes of data to really have a look at Zach Levine as a Bull, we don't really have much to go off, but even though he looks good, Today, uh, what I wanted to do is really discuss Levine from, I guess, his fit and his uh, his the way he will fit into this team going forward. So, but, but before we do that, and you've sort of alluded to it already, but I wanted to off the ta- off the uh, off the top rather set the table on how you feel about Levine as a prospect. Uh, I have an idea of what, about what you're going to say, but I want you to let the listeners in on what you may see from Levine, or or perhaps maybe even more importantly what you don't see in Levine as a player. Yeah, so um, I'm pretty, uh, you know, bearish, I guess I would say, on, on him as a prospect. Uh, he's he's definitely improved um, pretty much every season he's been in the league, which is to his credit. Uh, you know, his scoring efficiency has improved every year. Um, I think his, uh, he's gotten better as a, in terms of not turning the ball over. Uh, every year, his and you know, and he he's done that while main basically maintaining his usage at a you know slightly above average clip, which is good. Um, but the the thing with Levine is he's uh, part of this kind of archetype of guys that 
Um, he, he does one thing really well and, you know, really well is maybe even giving, uh, giving him a little bit too much credit. He's a pretty good scorer, um, on, you know, decent volume, but he doesn't really make plays for other people. Uh, he's not like a big rebound guy. He is, um, you know, a, a pretty terrible defensive player. So he's not really contributing in a lot of other aspects of the game. Um, I don't necessarily want to say that he can't ever do any of those things, uh, but he's been in the league now for three years, and uh, you would think that we would start to see some of it. Um, the flip side of it is that he's 21 years old, uh, or he was 21 last year, 22 this season. And so, you know, he, maybe there's there's more there. Uh, the athleticism is definitely there. I think one of the other things that's... Uh, you know, a, a little bit um, surprising about him that, you know, based on his sort of athletic profile that you would probably think would be different is that he doesn't really get to the foul line all that much for his career. He gets, he gets about uh, four and a half free throw attempts per 100 possessions, which is not really that great for a guy that uh, with his sort of athletic gifts um, and especially for a guy that scores about, you know, 25 points for uh 100 possessions or, uh, you know, 18 points per 36 minutes. You know, you, you would think if he's doing that level of scoring that he would be getting to the line a lot more than he does, um, especially given that he's able to attack the basket. But he just, uh, he, he tends to coast a lot on the perimeter and he has a really good jump shot. He's a very good shooter off the dribble. So you can kind of understand it a little bit, but um, if he's going to be, if he's going to take a leap, I think that's a big part of what he'll need to do is to just be more aggressive. And um, I don't know if, you know, if that's a personality thing or if he doesn't necessarily have the wiggle on his dribble to, to get to the, get into the paint and really utilize that athleticism outside of transition. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that, uh, you know, he's a guy that has improved, so that's to his credit. I wouldn't completely write him off because of that. It's not like he is um, Andrew Wiggins and spent, you know, three years of his career not getting any better. Uh, but, um, you know, and even Wiggins is now starting to, to see some improvement. Uh, so, you know, it's always possible. I just, when, when somebody is a guy that doesn't necessarily make plays for others and doesn't, you know, contribute in a lot of other ways other than one way, uh, that always makes me a bit skeptical about their prospects for real stardom because that's sort of the thing that differentiates real stars from you know points per game stars. Uh, yeah. So that, that that's sort of how I feel about Zach Levine. Yeah, I mean that's fair. I think most most people would agree with that to an extent. Probably where some may differ is his ability to to score or, or what they see his top line being in terms of a scorer. I know some people out there have suggested that he may be able to be a you know a 23 to 25 point per game type scorer and I don't necessarily subscribe to that theory, but even if he is, like you said he he hasn't shown an ability to I guess get in there and rebound and create for others and and obviously play defense. So there's obviously uh there's value to a guy just being a great scorer and, and if he's an efficient one then then that obviously is a positive as well. But yeah, like you said, we'll, we've yet to see the complete game from Levine, but obviously it's still early, he's 22 years old and listening to the most recent Zach Lowe podcast where he had Jim Peterson on 
the Timberwolves broadcast analyst on. He, he was raving about Levine in terms of, of his work ethic. So, and, and to your point, he, Levine has improved on, every, on on each season. So I have some hope that he can improve in those areas to a degree. But like you sort of touched on, the, the main thing that I want to see him improve on is his free throw ability or his ability to draw free throws. And why that is important going forward is not only for his game, but you think about Chris Dunn and Lowry Markkinen as well, they're not, not necessarily two guys who really get to the line a lot. So if Levine, Markkinen and Dunn are going to be your, your three main offensive pieces going forward, which may be the case if the Bulls keep winning and uh, find themselves with a less than desirable draft pick, then one of those three guys is going to really need to step up and get to the line a lot more. So that's what I want to see from Levine and, and, and we'll, we'll see how that sort of progresses going forward. But I guess my main interest with Levine right now is how Fred Hoiberg is going to reintegrate him into the lineup and I guess what the rotation will look like once Levine is fully back. So like I said before, he's on a 20-minute restriction currently. He started the game today against the Pistons but obviously played the 19 minutes. Um, At least initially, how do you think Hoiberg is going to handle this this, uh, reintegration process with Levine? He's obviously started that way by uh, starting Levine and shooting guard and moving Valentine back to the bench. But but by and large, how do you think he'll treat the rotation now that Levine is back? Yeah, I mean, I think, so the initial look here was that, uh, you know, Zipser's basically out of the rotation, which, I mean, I think is the right move. Zipser's been pretty terrible um, for, for a little while now. Um, and the, Valentine going to the bench makes sense to me. I'm, I'm really not a big Denzel Valentine fan. Um, mm-hmm. I find him very frustrating to watch and uh, he just, he can't really get to the basket. We, I mean, we talked about this a little bit on Twitter, but he can't really get to the basket. He, uh, because he can't get to the basket, he's not as much of a threat. So he can't really create for others, which is a large part of his value um, when it came to his play in college. What made him like an intriguing prospect was that he was a good playmaker for other people. Um, but he just has not been able to, because of his lack of athleticism and burst, um, and his inability to get into the paint consistently, he is not able to do much playmaking. And I think his defense is pretty bad. Um, you know, and he doesn't really show up that much in some of the metrics. Um, I don't think I haven't looked at his defensive real plus minus or anything like that, but, um, his, you know, box defensive box plus minus. I think grades him out as pretty average, but that's not what I see when I watch him. He's really weak. Um, he, you know, he was getting muscled uh, all over the place by Avery Bradley tonight. Uh, and, you know, Bradley's a strong guy, but he's also not a huge guy. And he just pushed him all over the place, all over the floor. And you see that happen to Valentine a lot. He's, he's you know, I think you described him as skinny fat, which is uh, pre- <laughs> pretty accurate. Um and I meant that in, that in the nicest way possible, by the way. <laughs> hey, I mean, you know, I've been skinny fat. It's, you know, it's fine. But it's not <laughs> it's not necessarily fine if you want to play rotation minutes for an NBA basketball team. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah, I'm just not a very big fan of Valentine. So for me, I, I would rather see, uh, you know, his minutes get cut um, and, you know, Nawaba not necessarily take – uh, a huge cut in the rotation. Um, I, I guess I should say that in terms of if if they're actually going to continue to try to win games, it would make more sense to me to, to do that. 
if they're trying to maximize the tank, then probably play Valentine over Nuaba because I think Nuaba is just a better player than Valentine. Uh, he's much more athletic. He's able to get into the um, actually get easy baskets around the rim with his cutting uh, and finish through contact. And he's a far superior defensive player to Valentine. Um, so that I think you know I, I don't know what Fred's going to do, but that's what I would do is to. You know, the Levine minutes would come at the expense of Valentine and, and Zipser for me. Yeah, and, and and like you said, Zipser's obviously out of the rotation. And, and looking at the minutes, um, the way Fred distributed his minutes in this game against the Pistons, he had Valentine with 21 minutes. Even though Valentine was the first guard off the bench, he only played the 21 minutes compared to David Nwabo, who, who had the 26, and Justin Holiday starting alongside Levine had the 32. So the distribution there on the wings was pretty good, I think, at this point. Um, once once they start ramping up Levine's minutes from, say, 19 upwards to like 25 or 30, I guess that's when it's going to be really interesting of of Valentine, Nwaba, and Holiday, who loses minutes. It might be a combination of all three. Um, you know, I've, I've definitely made it very clear on Twitter as well as on, on Bulls HQ that I would be making Valentine my fourth guard in the rotation. I think there's no way Nawaba should be losing minutes or, or playing anything less than 25 minutes a game, assuming, again, that the Bulls actually want to win games. Like you said, I think Nawaba needs to stay in the rotation. But I, I guess one of the interesting points that's um, being discussed on Bulls Twitter as well is about who you would start next to uh, Zach Levine in the starting lineup. So would you would you personally start uh, Justin Holiday or David Nawaba at small forward? So it's a tough question, right? Because if you start Nawaba, then you have basically Chris Dunn and Nawaba in the backcourt, um, which is not great uh, from a floor spacing perspective. Um, but, you know, Nawaba, I think, is a much better defensive player than Justin Holiday. Uh, and so, um, you know, it's kind of which end are you trying to optimize for, I guess, to some extent, because... Uh, Nawaba is going to give you a lot better defense um, and he's not going to space the floor and you're you're going to face a, a real constriction on you know floor spacing with him and Chris Dunn together um, you know Dunn has looked better on his shot I, I was saying this tonight he looks really great as a shooter if he has his feet underneath of him uh, the problem is a lot of the time he doesn't get his feet set and he you know when he doesn't take his time or doesn't, you know, get his feet directly underneath of him, he looks terrible. But when he, when he does, his jumper looks nice. Uh, but, you know, the problem is, is just the consistency with Dunn, which has been the case pretty much his whole career so far. Uh, but, you know, I think I would probably start Holiday. I don't think he's a terrible defender. I just don't think he's as good a defender as Nawaba. But in terms of balance, you know, he can still shoot the three. He's, you know, a passable defender. Um, and Chris Dunn is, uh, you know, an incredible defender. So I think that between the two of them, you have pretty good backcourt defense. Levine's going to be, you know, not great there. But, um, you know, with, with Lopez, Dunn, and Holiday, I think you have enough defense to, to be, you know, passable uh, with the starters. Uh, whereas, uh, you know, with Nawaba, you would, the defense would be probably a little bit better, but you, your offense would struggle, which 
can have a negative def- uh, effect on your on your defense too if you're not able to score the ball. Yeah, and no, I, I completely agree. I would start Holiday because for for balance reasons and and you know politically as well, he's obviously. I won't say a marquee free agent signing, but he was probably the biggest free agent the Bulls signed, and and he's one of the team leaders, I guess. So it would be hard to remove him from the starting lineup from a political perspective, I guess. So Holiday making a starting small forward does make sense, and and I kind of like Nyaba being that piece off the bench that that just comes in and just starts wrecking everyone as this high energy guy off the bench. So. I'm kind of liking it at the moment. The one thing I didn't want to see is Valentine and Levine playing together. But unfortunately, we saw about two minutes of that tonight. So I'm hoping that doesn't trend forward. Oh, it isn't a trend moving forward. But having said that, if if that can help the, sustain the tank, then maybe we need to play these two guys uh, heavy minutes together. Yeah, uh, they're... Uh, th- those two together is a is a train wreck defensively. <laughs> I, I you know the, I see only bad things uh, with those two playing together. You know Levine I think has the the physical tools to be a, a pretty decent defensive player. I don't know if it's a mental thing with him or if it's an effort thing or I, I I'm you know just having watched him you know in the 19 minutes he played tonight. A lot of his mistakes look to be mental, but that could also just be a product of being in a new system with new teammates and all that sort of thing. Um, you know, I know that he was a poor defender in uh, Minnesota, but I don't necessarily remember specifically whether it was, you know, more down to uh, attitude versus uh you know, mental capability when it comes to that. Because a lot of times it's hard to separate those two things out. Yeah, I mean, that's fair. That's fair. So, I mean, we'll see how that progresses throughout the season. But so far, I was pretty pleased with how Hoiberg had managed his rotations during the whole season. But even in this game, even though I didn't necessarily like the Valentine and Levine combination, I think by and large, Hoiberg managed this pretty well. And he kept... He kept uh, Levine under 20 minutes, so John Paxson, I'm sure, would be very happy with that as well. He won't be stressing about having to go down and uh, have a word to his coach about minutes restrictions. I'm sure he's happy about that. But look, the reason why I wanted to have you on this podcast is because of your analytical approach to, I guess, analyzing the game just generally. But given that I want to talk about Levine and later Miritich, two guys that I guess, again, amongst Bulls Twitter have been interesting discussion pieces from an analytics perspective, what I wanted to really start talking about now is about Levine and how he, how he could actually help the Bulls tank. Now, I've seen online you sort of project that, you know, playing Levine and, and the way the rotation may settle out, that it may actually help the Bulls tank. I sort of know what you were talking about there, but are you able to expand on that and, and sort of just let everyone know what your basic thinking was behind that point? Yeah, so the way that the Bulls, to the extent that they've been winning, uh, have been winning is their defense is better uh, than their than their offense. Um, you know, they're twenty ninth in the in the league right now in offensive rating, and they've been were twenty third in defensive rating. Now that might change after tonight's game because they played pretty terribly on defense um, tonight. But you know, they the. Basically, uh, I don't think that Levine is going to markedly improve the offense. Um, I think the offense will get a little bit better, but I think that he's going to take 
one of the you know their relative strengths uh, of the defense and probably make it worse. Um, you know, maybe that's not the case if he if his minutes just come at the expense of uh, Zipser and um, Valentine, both of whom have not been very effective defensive players. Um, I know a lot of people kind of thought of Zipser as being a, a solid defender, but um, the numbers really don't bear that out. Uh, and Valentine, his you know sort of metrics are kind of a mixed bag on defense, but uh, I I personally find him to be pretty uh, unsightly defender. So if you know if all of his minutes are coming at the expense of those guys, maybe it doesn't have as drastic of an effect as I. Uh, was kind of joking, but my thought was that his minutes were going to come at the expense of Nawaba, just because Nawaba is kind of like the guy that they signed as a as a flyer, and um, you know doesn't necessarily have the same sort of cachet um, in the uh, doesn't have the same sort of cachet in the league, uh, and so that was kind of my assumption. And if I, I think Nawaba is, is been a big part of why the Bulls have been successful. Um, you know, he kind of arrived at the at the same time as um, as Miritich coming back. He came back from his injury as well, and uh, you know, I think the the combination of those two has been a big part of why they've been better. And if he was going to take, if Levine was going to take his minutes, I thought it was going to be a huge drop off in defense. You're going from a a very solid defensive player to you know statistically one of the worst defensive players in the league the last few years. So. Um, that that was kind of where my head was at with that. Yeah, and I mean, logically speaking, that makes complete sense. And, and to support your point, in his three seasons to date, from an on-off perspective, Levine has been, I guess, a negative player from a net rating perspective. So now, obviously, different situation, different context, all these sorts of things. But it, it goes to your point that Levine obviously can provide something offensively, but there he's a large, because he's a large negative on defense the net effect is that he's not necessarily helping your team and that was the case in his three seasons in Minnesota or his two and a half seasons I guess given the injury but obviously like I said different context here now that he's part of a Bulls team uh, a bad Bulls team but we'll, we'll see how that sort of translate uh, going forward but given that he was such a negative in those advanced statistical categories with the Wolves how much should that really be factored into his, I guess, his next role here with the Chicago, given the fact that there's, there's such dramatic changes between the scenarios, not only from, I guess, the players he's playing with, but the fact that a team like the Wolves were actually a really good offense last season, whereas the Bulls are, are shockingly bad. Yeah, so that is, it's a good point you're making about the context and taking that into account for any of these metrics, even the on-off stuff and even like the adjusted, um, you know, sort of the, real plus minus and uh, you know the adjusted plus minus uh, family of metrics I think you know the the context still plays a role because you can't really separate that out from uh, from what's happening like you see it all the time where guys will switch teams and you know all of a sudden their numbers and even just like if you take away the numbers and just look at their adjusted plus minus metrics they you know the change in in role uh, completely changes how they perform you know I think like a great example of that is Matt Bonner was always like one of these like great on off guys and great even like when you did the um, adjustment for uh, 
and did the like adjusted plus minus stuff, it would always stand out as being really great. And it was because, you know, Pop, uh, Coach Popovich uh, did a great job of maximizing his skill set. Um, and so he would always look like this world beater in terms of his impact on the, the margin of uh, the margin of the game. Um, you know, if you put Matt Bonner on a team with a lesser coach, he would look a lot worse. He's a limited player. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that, that stuff is all important to, to keep in mind when you're talking about these things. Um, I think that, you know, Levine had three seasons or two and a half seasons of, of data. Uh, I think his college metrics um, also indicated a player that, uh, you know, would be probably able to score in the league, but not necessarily have a great impact. Um, and then, you know, if he has uh, similar numbers in in a different context here with the Bulls, uh, you know, I think you have to go based on, uh, you know, the, the best way uh, that we have to project the future is to look to the past, right? Like um, it's imperfect. And a lot of the times there, there's things that happen that uh, you can't necessarily foresee, but in general, it, it works pretty well. Um, so, you know, if he's not able to, to show, um, and again, he's shown improvement, you know, uh, maybe not so much in terms of like the impact stats, uh, the adjusted plus minus type stats, but, you know, in terms of his scoring efficiency and things like things of that nature, um, he's, he's definitely improved his skill level and his, um, you know, that, that stuff does matter. I just think that if he's unable to, to really, sort of change that narrative, I would be very sort of reticent to, um, to, to invest a ton of money in him, but they also, he's like the main piece that they got for, um, Jimmy Butler, or at least that's sort of how he's been presented. Uh, you know, I think Chris Dunn has done a good job of, you know, making it more of a, um, an even split. And then, you know, Lowry Markkinen has had a very solid rookie year so. Um, he's not the only piece, but I think that the Bulls are kind of in a tough spot where he's one of the main things that they got for, you know, a guy who's now playing like the best player in the league or, you know, one of them. Yeah, a hundred percent. And, and at the time of the deal, Levine was the centerpiece of the deal because Don had come off a bad rookie season. And, and at the time, the seventh pick was just the seventh pick. He wasn't Larry Markinen or, or this version of Larry Markinen that we've seen. So Levine still is central to this to this uh, Butler deal. Obviously, it's the the rise of Larry Markkinen and the improvement of Dunn has helped mitigate, I guess, the need for him to become a star or something of that nature. But he's still a big piece in this deal. But I, I guess why I, I why I ask that question is because I'm pretty much expecting Levine. The fact that he's returning from an ACL, he's going to be the lead offensive option on a really bad team that generally will have. I guess will perform poorly in in, in um, advanced metrics. I just wonder what the narrative will be around Levine, given all that context as well as how bad this team will be if he happens to post a you know a really bad um, BPM or his on-off splits just a, a, a an ineffective or uh, not necessarily an influential player. How that will affect the perception of him moving forward. So you sort of touched on how you think that will play out. So I won't necessarily ask you that question, but. Uh, that to me, I think is going to be something that's going to be really interesting to see over the next 40 games is how the narrative around Levine will be sort of structured 
based on his advanced metrics, but um, he's going to be an interesting case of applying that versus what we see on the court from an eye test perspective and, and moving forward. But I guess thinking about what he can produce on the court, how do you think or, or where do you see over the next 40, 40 games or so, where do you think his value will lie from a contract perspective? Well, so there's it's his value where his value will lie and and where his uh contract will end up might be might be different things. Uh but you know, like I said, I would be hesitant to to offer him a ton of money. Um you know, if he's going to get 15 million dollars a year, that I think that seems probably uh you know, I I would consider that overpaying a little bit, but uh, you know, I think the market for him is going to be such that they're probably going to have to overpay because teams still to this day, even with the sort of being in the, I guess, data ball uh, is one of the ways that people are describing it. Being in this era of more data and more in- information, teams still consistently overpay for scorers. Um, and who knows, maybe maybe it's not that it's not really overpaying. Maybe they know something that I don't about uh what's valuable but um i think that teams are willing to to gamble i guess on guys that they know can can get buckets um even if they haven't necessarily shown the other aspects of the game they they think that they can that the, that stuff is developable um i think that you know it is to some degree but i think it might be that, that might be a little bit overstated in the minds of some of these teams uh, but you know, I, if they get him for like, you know, four years, 60 million, that would be not the worst. Cause I think like, that's like probably average starter money. Um, and I don't think he's like, you know, he, he's not an average starter at this point, uh, or hasn't been to this point in his career, but, uh, he, you know, so you're paying a little bit for some improvement, um, but I'm sure he's going to be looking for more money than that. Yeah, I, I 100% assume that's the case. So his max will be around the 25 million mark, depending on where I guess the uh, the, the cap initially uh, gets set, depending on what that final number will be. But just for the sake of this conversation, we'll call it around 25 million or so, at least in that first season. So if that's his max contract, that's definitely what he'll be chasing. So, and that's going to be one of the storylines that I guess surrounds this team moving forward is over the next 40 games or so is how much time he gets to really I guess showcase himself as a lead guy worthy of that max but you mentioned 15 million there I think that would be that would be fantastic from from a cap perspective but I think for me at least if the Bulls can get him under four years 80 million knowing that you generally have to overpay to keep guys and, and those sorts of things I think that would be a win for the Bulls assuming he can at least be the player he was last season if he can return to being that player that would be nice but um yeah it'll be interesting to see because the the thing that may really work in the Bulls favor here is the fact that there's not a lot of teams out there with cap space and I I know Levine does a lot of things that the league likes or is is enjoying at the moment from you know a shooting perspective at least I I still think there's not going to be necessarily a huge market out there for a guy that like you said like we've talked about all these flaws and he's only coming back 30 to 40 games into the season now. I don't know if the value is necessarily going to be there for him for a max deal. So 
hopefully the Bulls can lock him up to a deal ex- not not exceeding you know eighty million over four years or something like that. But if they could get him for something closer to fifteen million per season, that would be that would be incredible. But I, I probably don't see that happening. I think it's going to be closer to twenty million myself. Yeah, and I, I mean I th- I think that. 20 million is probably reasonable to expect from a market perspective. I think 20 million dollars for in terms of what you're you're actually getting on the floor uh, and what are what you're likely to get over those four years is you know a pretty massive overpay. But you know sometimes that sometimes that's just what the market is, and you know you can make the argument that if that's what the market is, then you should just walk away. But uh, you also have to roll out a roster, right? And the Bulls, I don't think, are interested in uh, a multiple-year uh, tank job. I will say, though, that it would be pretty rich uh, if they ended up signing him to you know, $20 million a year. Um, and it was largely driven by the fact that uh, they allegedly didn't want to pay Jimmy Butler his next contract. <laughs> Uh, and then they go out and pay Zach Levine, you know, $20 million a year. Uh, so th- that would be kind of ironic to me or, you know, maybe not even ironic is the right word. Maybe just dumb. Uh, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not really sure where, where he'll end up in terms of money. But he, he's going to be a really interesting case. I do think, to your point, that it does work to the Bulls' advantage that, you know, he's going to be a free agent in a year where there's not going to be a lot of free cap space available. And um, he has been a pretty limited player in terms of impact. Uh, you know, I, there's, but you know, they, they always say they all it takes is one asshole. Uh, and so, you know, who knows what's out there in terms of um, what teams might be willing to do. Um, you know, there's, there's it, there could be a team that's out there that like uh, the the Nets did to Portland a while ago goes out and gives him a massive offer like uh, like what happened with them um, Alan Crab uh, yep. so you know you never know I guess yeah and I hope that doesn't happen hopefully none of that none of those uh, shenanigans take place but I mean the Bulls really have three major decisions heading into the offseason one of them being around Levine and, and his contract situation. Another would be what they do with their remaining cap space and whether they try to, you know, lure a big name or whether they overpay for, for uh, some decent role players and sort of fill up their cap that way. And the other obvious big decision will be what they do with their draft pick. So they're the main things heading into the offseason. But I guess their biggest roster move that they need to really uh, manage moving forward is how they handle Nikola Mirotic. So trending off or moving away from Zach Levine, I wanted to focus now on Nikola Mirotic, who... Apart from Levine, he's probably the biggest story thus far of the Bulls' season. Uh, obviously, what happened in the, in the off-season, how he's come back and how he's played, and obviously now the trade rumors that are circulating. And we're pretty much only a day or two away from when Miritich can be officially traded. Hopefully, this, this podcast won't be time-stamped to a degree because I'm, I'm planning on uh, releasing this on Monday morning. Hopefully, he's not traded at this point or oh, that time, making this next 20 minutes or so somewhat redundant. But... Um, Obviously, the, the Miritich trade talks are going to start heating up once Jan 15 rolls around because that is when Miritich can be traded. So news broke pretty much last week that Miritich has an interest in playing in Utah and playing for Quinn Snyder, which to me makes complete sense. So that was, I guess, broken by Woj there as well as I think um, Joe Cowley had some news on that as well. And then the 
the rumors started flowing thereafter with Mark Stein reporting that the Pistons were interested and I think Casey Johnson chimed in on the back there with the, the Portland Trailblazers also being interested in, in Miritich as well. So my first question to you around that is, um, what did you make of that news? And from those teams' perspective, why does it make sense for Miritich or for them to be chasing Miritich? Um, I think it makes sense that the, there are teams that are interested in Miritich. I, I mean, he especially of late has, you know, I think it, you know, uh, I, th- I think he's been basically this good for a while. Uh, but, you know, sometimes it takes a good narrative for people's perceptions of a player to catch up with what the reality of that player is. And, uh, you know, the Bulls being one of the worst teams in the league and then Miritich comes back and they start winning a bunch of games. Um, you know, that it leads to a pretty clean narrative about causality, which I think, you know, perked up some teams that, you know, that every team in the league had an off an opportunity. Well, every team with cap space had an opportunity to, to throw him an offer sheet uh, this summer and none of them did. Um, so, you know, I, I think that his value around the league seems to be up um, and it's probably closer to where I think it always should have been. I've always been pretty high on him as in terms of what, relative to, I guess, the general consensus about him, um, particularly among Spurs fans. A lot of guy, a lot of people don't seem to like Nico all that much. Um, I think probably just because his shooting is pretty volatile uh, and people don't really have a lot of patience for that, even though he's, unlike a lot of guys that uh, can be a scorer, he contributes in a lot of other ways. I think that people just look at him and don't necessarily see a guy that is pretty good at getting steals for a big man and like is uh, has some switchy defensive versatility in terms of being able to switch on the guards and uh, you know is a good playmaker if you give him the ball and ask him to to you know run some pick and roll or things like that like he has a lot to his game um, and I don't even think that the Bulls fully unleashed him um, in his time in Chicago even in this winning streak I think like he hasn't necessarily been asked to do as much as I think he's capable of. Um, but in any event, I, I'm not surprised that there are teams that are out there interested in him. I'm not surprised that, you know, the Jazz are interested. They are a pretty smart fr- uh, front office. Um, typically, they, they seem to be pretty good at talent evaluation. Um, the Pistons, they're, they've, been, they've had a hit or miss record for talent evaluation. Same for the Blazers, but, you know, that's most teams. Um, but I could see him fitting on any of those teams, really. Uh, it would be, um, you know, I think all three of those teams have good coaches. Uh, I think Quinn Snyder's a good coach. I think uh, Stan Van Gundy's a very good coach. And uh, I, I think Terry Stotts, you know, runs some really nice actions and w- would probably, uh, you know, have some fun stuff to, to um, put Nico in. And, you know, they could really use the shooting. Uh, in Portland, they, you know, I think they have people kind of think about them as being a team with shooting just because they have uh, Dame and CJ uh, McCollum. But outside of those two guys, they really struggle uh, to make shots. Losing Alan Crabb was, you know, one of their only other shot makers. And so they're, uh, you know, they're a little bit bereft of, of shooting. And I think he would really help them uh, because of that. 
Yeah, look, I 100% agree with you. And, and I wrote a post up there on Bulls HQ this week, pretty much alluding to the fact that these are three teams that want to be a high three-point shooting team. And, and given that Miritich at the moment is shooting 46.5% from three, and pretty much amongst front court players that have played 400 or more minutes, he's second to only Davis per chance in terms of volume of threes taken in um, per 100 possessions. So when you combine all that and what Miritic is producing this season, it really is a weapon from the three-point line. And the Utah Jazz are one of the, I guess, one of the better three-point shooting teams in the league from from a percentage perspective, but also in terms of the number of, of field goal attempts they take from three relative from their total field goal attempts. Uh, but what, the Pistons and the Blazers aren't that, to your point that you were making, particularly around the Blazers. They they were a team that really relied on that three-point shot, at least in prior years under Terry Stotts. And Stotts is certainly someone that wants to have a high percentage of his shots being from the three-point line, but that hasn't been the case this season. So just thinking about it logically, that's why Miritich to Portland, as well as Detroit, again, a team that wants to shoot a lot of threes, but doesn't necessarily get a lot of their offense from there. That's why they're really interested in Miritich. And those three teams could really use a stretch four. They don't necessarily have one at the moment. So I'm not surprised to see these four teams, or sorry, three teams making a call for Miritich. But uh, from a Chicago's perspective, which of those teams do you think could produce the best return for Miritich? Yeah, that's um, that's a tough question because I, I guess I'm not as steeped in knowing what... Uh what sort of draft assets the any of those teams have. Um, I, I don't think that the Bulls are necessarily interested in getting players back from Miritich. Um, you know, one of the advantages of, or one of the, you know, besides getting a pick, one of the other sort of benefits to getting rid of Miritich is that he should, you know, that should help them with their uh, increasing the value of their own pick by uh, assisting their tank. Uh, because right now he's been, you know, they, they've won a bunch of close games. And I think, you know, if you remove one of their two or three best players um, during that stretch, uh, that's the difference between winning and losing. And they really need to start losing more. Um, but as far as what, what's available from those teams, I guess I'd have to look more closely at, at what assets they have um, in terms of draft assets. I think right now uh, the either the Jazz or Portland are in the worst shape as far as their own pick, right? So, yeah. The yeah, so Utah currently have a losing record, so they would hold the 11th pick if the draft was to be held today, assuming positions were to stay as is. Yeah, so, I mean, from that perspective, Utah is probably the best bet. Um, I also think that they have... Uh, you know, I think Miritich would improve them. Uh, I think he would be actually a nice fit with uh, a front court of Miritich and uh, Epe uh, Udo would be pretty pretty nice. Udo is a really good rim protector, but not much of a, a scorer outside of like maybe some stuff around the basket. And obviously we know what Miritich can do in terms of spacing the floor and all that sort of thing. Um, so I think that, that, you know, obviously I think their record would get better with him. So it might push them, uh, back into the playoffs and outside of the lottery, but I think that he's going to improve whatever team he goes to. So if you're sending him to the worst of those, uh, of those teams, that's probably for the best. And I think, um, I know, I, I know Derek Favors was rumored as sort of, uh, you know, part of the, the deal and, 
I think he's an expiring contract, so I don't think that the Bulls would be interested in bringing him back. I think if he's just salary filler, that's probably pretty good. Um, I just don't know what you do with favors in terms of playing time and things like that because he's kind of one of those guys that uh, is, if you play him, he's too good that he, to the point where he's going to uh, hurt your ability to, to tank. Um, so that, that's, and he's, you know, where he is in a contract year, I think it would be very politically uh, problematic to not play him and just kind of ask him to, to sit it out the rest of the year. Um, so who knows if there, if there's actually discussions around favors, maybe the bulls are actually interested in him sort of as a prospect. Uh, but, um, I, I think he's a, he's a real tough fit next to Gobert, So it, it makes sense that they'd be looking to, to include him as part of a package for somebody that maybe fits a little bit better. Yeah, and I've floated the idea as well in, in, in a mailbag post that I made that favors or the, or the Jazz sending back favors to the Bulls makes sense for them because I guess they've tried to, to make this pairing of favors and Gobert work before and they're probably ready to move on. And the fact that favors is a free agent, whereas Miritich, assuming that team option is opted into, can have another year remaining on his deal, they wouldn't necessarily lose their power forward or their starting, their starting power forward for nothing, I guess, like they did with obviously Gordon Haywood in the offseason. So right. it wouldn't surprise me if they would try to, I guess, recoup their power forward, power forward position rather by including Favors. And the fact that Favors pretty much earns the exact same amount as Miritich makes sense from a salary perspective. And, and the Jazz are a team that are operating over the cap, I believe. So they need to almost um, match salaries to a degree. So that makes sense to me. But like you said, Favors is still a good player. He has value and including a pick with favors like the 11th pick that it currently is now is probably not going to happen unless the Bulls or I guess unless the Jazz put on some sort of heavy protections on that pick or unless the maybe the Bulls send something back towards Utah so it'll be interesting how that plays out itself but the Detroit Pistons own the 20th pick at the moment and the Portland Trailblazers have the 17th pick at the moment so they're interesting first rounders that the Bulls could hopefully get back for Miritich, something in the in the mid first round there. But pretty much what the Bulls want for Miritich is a first round pick and no long term bad contracts. So that's what's been reported, and I don't think they can have both. They, if they want a pick, they need to take on some bad salary, I guess. Maybe something that doesn't last for three or four seasons, but maybe something that lasts maybe one or two seasons. So I'm thinking like a Myers Leonard or maybe even an Evan Turner. Obviously. Two, two of their two seasons of their deals have been absorbed already. You would still have to pay two of those years going forward. But if you want that pick, that for extra first rounder, I don't think you're going to get that just from Miritich, um, and, and having no salary attached to that as all as well. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, I I get you know, I'm all for them being as greedy as possible uh, at the outset and not negotiating against themselves because uh, Lord knows they've uh, they've you know, done really poorly in some trades. <laughs> uh, you know, I think some of the second rounders that they seem to just toss in as, you know, uh, oh, you want another second rounder? Here you go. Here's like three of them. Uh, that, <laughs> that seems to be Gar's MO. He'll just, you know, toss extra assets at you for no reason. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that... If they're if they're at least being pretty strong on on that 
for now, that's probably good. But I think if it comes down to, you know, not making a deal or, or, uh, and, you know, passing up the opportunity to get a, a first round pick for Miritich, I think you got to take the extra year or two of salary. Um, just because I think, uh, you know, they're not going to be good anytime soon. They're, this is the first year of the rebuild. And, uh, you know, I don't see any can't miss, uh, you know, star on the roster. I really like Lowry Markkinen. I think Chris Dunn has shown some flashes. Um, I already talked about how I feel about Zach Levine. Uh, there's There's no one on this roster that seems to be like, yeah, that guy is going to be a future All NBA player uh, that we should feel good about. So they need to be getting um, as many bites at the apple at, uh, at grabbing a player like that as they can. And their best bet to do that is through the draft. So if you have to eat some bad salary uh, when you're not going to be a good team anyway, in order to uh, to get another draft asset, I think you have to do it. You know the odds of drafting an All NBA player from the late lottery or mid first round is is pretty low, but uh, you know pretty low is better than zero, right? So um, the more just chances you have, the the better off you are. And uh, it is a fairly deep draft. Maybe there will be some gems later in the draft. We know it's you know all the talk is is that it's really. Uh, um, it's really deep at the top. So, you know, maybe that trickles down to the mid and late first round. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I think you can't get too caught up on, Oh, we got to keep our cap sheet clean because honestly, who's signing in Chicago right now with, with what their roster looks like, probably nobody. So, you know, I, I think the value of their cap space is pretty low right now. Yeah, exactly. I agree 100%. And, and if you look at the Blazers and the Detroit Pistons, if you look at their cap sheet, there really is no way to make a trade without them sending back a guy that's going to have a bad contract um, back to Chicago. That has to happen. So from a Portland perspective, you've got Evan Turner and, and Myers Leonard, who I mentioned before. You've maybe even got Mo Harkless as well. Those three guys have two years remaining after this season, varying varying amounts between them Evan Turner around 18 million next season whereas Harkless and Leonard are closer to the 11 million mark but there's no way that Portland are going to engineer a trade with Chicago without one of those guys coming back so the Bulls would have to accept a contract of that nature if they want that first round pick same thing with Detroit I mean they're a team that's going to have over 100 million dollars committed next season which is the same for Portland and there's no real way to engineer a trade between the Pistons and the Bulls without someone like John Lua coming back to Chicago. And Lua is a guy that's making about $20 million over the next two seasons. But he has to be included for from a salary matching perspective for the Bulls to make out from this, to make out from this trade with the first-round pick in hand. So whilst I understand that they want a first-round pick and no bad salaries for Miritich, and that's you know very nice of them to ask for that, then the reality is they're not going to get that. They have to take on someone like John Lua if they want to get the Pistons' first-round pick. Yeah, and I mean, um, you know, if they were able to take on John Lua's salary, uh, I don't think John Lua is, like, a terrible player. Um, I actually, you know, liked him a long time ago when it was draft season. I thought he would be, like, a decent, like, late-round player and 
you know, uh, he's lasted quite a while in the league and he's making uh, $10.5 million a year now. So, um, to, you know, he's had a he's had a decent career for a guy that uh, was drafted pretty late. Um, and, uh, you know, I, he's he's got some floor stretchability. He's, you know, he's a, a rotation guy. He's definitely way overpaid uh, for what he is. But, um, you know, he's not like completely dead salary, I don't think. His PR sucks, but um, you know I, I think he's better than that indicates. Uh, and you know I, I don't think, like I said, I, I don't think he's worth ten and a half million dollars a year. Uh, but I also don't think that he's like a completely useless player. So, um, but he's also not so good that he's gonna um, you know help or change the Bulls' fortunes in terms of a tank. He's not gonna do that. Um, so. You know his and his PR this year is really bad, but that's based on like an eight-game sample. So um, traditionally, like his numbers uh, have been decent. Like he last year, he played him on like nineteen hundred minutes, and his box plus minus was a point one. Uh, so it was like basically right at league average. So you know he's not he's not a terrible player, uh, and you know. He you're he's 28 now, so you you know you'd be paying him until he was 30, I guess. Uh, but you know, it's a pretty small price to pay to get another uh, crack at a at a first round pick in in what should be a pretty good draft. So um, you know, it's not going to be a high draft pick in all in all likelihood, but it's a uh, it's not the worst thing in the world to take on a little bit of uh, bad salary. Um, and to especially to help ensure that your own pick is going to be better because right now they just they keep winning <laughs> and it's, yeah. it's a problem it's definitely a problem and Miritich is one of those reasons and I guess that's why they need to move him straight away or as soon as possible so let's see if they do that pretty much on Jan 15 I would assume they're not going to given that they played him against the Pistons today so Miritich was missed a few games due to illness but he returned today against the Pistons along with Levine, and I guess if they had a, a trade lined up for Miritic, they probably would have held him out given that this was the last game before Jan 15 or before the day he's eligible to be moved. So I, I would assume he's not going to be moved on Jan 15. Hopefully it's not too much longer after. But similar question to uh, that I posed to you about Zach Levine before in terms of what his impact will be on the tank and uh, Miritich, I guess, is the complete opposite to Zach Levine in the sense that he's always uh, really projected well from an on-off numbers perspective. His splits there have always been really good from a net rating perspective this season. I think apart from David Dwaba, he's the only bull with the positive net rating when he's on the floor. Everyone else is in a minus, I believe, off the top of my head. So Miritich has been super impactful this season. So my question to you is, if you remove Miritich out of the lineup and, and like we sort of we're talking about Levine before, uh, even with Levine coming back, how much do you think that will uh, really impact the Bulls? Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, Miritich is probably, he. I would probably say he's the Bulls' best player um, yeah. this year. Uh, you know, you, you can make a case that the best player has been like Justin Holiday or um, some people might even say like Robin Lopez just because he's been so steady inside. Uh, but I, I would say it's probably been Nico. I mean, granted, he hasn't had to play as many minutes as everybody else. Um, you know, he got punched in the face, so, but, uh, 
you know, I, I think he's he's really good, and he's been a huge reason why, um, you know, why they've been winning games. And I think uh, I think I alluded to this earlier that like a lot of these games they're winning, they're not winning by very much. Uh, and you know, if they can stop winning those squeakers, which I think you know, you take somebody that's you know, uh, consistently a plus one, two, three player over a hundred possessions, um, depending on whatever metric you might be looking at and you replace him with, uh, more minutes for, I don't know, Paul Zipser or Zach Levine or whoever that, you know, typically grades out as a, as a slight, uh, negative in the case of, uh, Levine or depending, depending on what number you're looking at. Some, some of the plus minus metrics really think Levine is a pretty negative player. Or, but like Zipser has like been grading out as like one of the worst players in the league. Uh, if you know if you get rid of Miritich and you get more minutes to Zipser, they're gonna be the Bulls are gonna be a lot worse. Um, and so that's you know that's the hope I guess is that it helps them uh, get to where they need to be in terms of uh, tanking. Yeah, and I mean at the time of recording this, the Bulls currently sit ninth in the Tankathon ratings or standings rather. So. I guess from a win perspective, they're at 16, where teams like Atlanta and Sacramento and even Orlando are more closer to 11 or, 11 or 12 or 13 in that range. So I guess there is plenty of time here for the Bulls to, to realign this tank and get it back on the rails and get it sorted if they can move someone like Miritich. And given that, you know, he like I mentioned, that he's pretty much the only player that has a, a positive net rating and, and Miritich... You know, throughout his career, has always been someone that has strongly or, or performed strongly in those sort of advanced metrics. It, it does stand to reason that if you replace him with inferior players, like I guess Levine can be from a net rating perspective, on-off splits, numbers, and those sorts of things, and, and, and like Paul Zipser, maybe he comes back into the rotation after you move Miritich and he plays more of a backup power forward then that will have a pretty big impact for the Bulls and potentially they could re-enter that race for a top three to five pick and that could be huge for the franchise going forward. So we'll see what happens. We'll see if this trade happens this week. I'm hoping it happens as quick as possible. I don't know if it's going to happen right on Jan 15, but I'd be very surprised if we're waiting until the trade deadline to make this move. But um, hopefully next next, po- next podcast I record, Miritich um, has been traded, but we, we will see. So, um, but look, I appreciate you jumping online here and, and talking to me about Levine and Miritich. It's going to be an interesting uh, remaining 40 games for the Bulls for, from a Levine perspective, but the next couple of weeks from what they do with Miritich should also be pretty fascinating as well. So uh, thanks for joining me. Tell everyone where they can uh, follow you online. Yeah, you can follow me on NBA Couchside uh, on Twitter. Um, if I write anything, I typically link to it. Uh, either write it on my site at nbacouchside.com or I will usually, if I write somewhere else, I'll usually throw a link to it. The, but uh, my account is locked right now on Twitter, but you can still try to follow me. And I have typically been letting uh, letting people uh, follow me, but uh, I just went incognito a little bit online uh, for some, you know, personal reasons, I guess. But, uh, you know, you can still follow me. Uh, I'll probably accept accept your request as long as your account doesn't look sketchy. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, that's fair enough. And, and and I probably should have asked you this before, but given that you're on a Bulls-based a Bulls podcast, I should say, and that you were a former Bulls fan, um, uh-huh. 
what would it take you to, to get you back on the uh, on, on the big red bus that my friend CBE, CBE Fred is, is uh, referring to this thing as? Would, would it take someone like a, a Luka Doncic to get you back on board if, if some for some reason come next June or in June, I should say, he's holding a bull's cap and he's uh, shaking the hand of Adam Silver up there on, on, the, uh, on the podium and he's wearing a bull's hat as the first overall pick. Are you going to be back on board? Uh, well, I think I said, uh, I don't know where I said it. It might've just been Twitter, but, uh, when I was first, uh, uh, sort of dealing with the, my crisis of fandom, uh, I guess you could call it, I, I latched on to Luca and said, uh, at one point that I was just going to root for wherever he went. Uh, so I guess technically if he goes to the bulls, then I'm, I'm stuck back on the bus. Um, but <laughs> reluctantly. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's one of those things where if you have bad management, uh, which you know maybe the Bulls are proving me wrong on this. The the the, the trade I think still looks bad, uh, but I I think it looks better than it did at the time. Um, but they've made a lot of really bad trades uh, under Gar Foreman. I think they were a little bit better run when Paxson was the GM. I don't think he was a great GM, but I don't think he was bad. And uh, I think Gar Foreman has been affirmatively bad as a as a GM, and so when you have that uh, management, it just becomes very discouraging um, because you, you can't win with bad management in pro sports. So that is my reluctance, I guess, to get back on board. The Bulls do have some fun players. I think Chris Dunn is a very frustrating player to watch, but he can be very fun, especially watching him on defense is um, is a lot of fun. And uh, Lowry Markkinen is obviously very fun. Uh, you know, Nico was kind of like the last of the players that I really um, cared about uh, of the prior crop of Bulls players. And so I thought I would be for sure out once he finally got traded. Um, but of course, they had to go and trade for two guys that I um, kind of like. And then, you know, of course, David Nawaba is, uh, you know, hard not to root for. So, yeah. So what I'm hearing from there is you're pretty much back. So, <laughs> um, Here's, here's to hoping that Luka Doncic becomes a bull for your sake and for mine because he's my guy in the draft as well. But um, yeah, he's we incredible. Shall see man. what happens. He's incredible. He's, he's awesome. He's, he's awesome. completely dominating the Euro League as a was he 18, 19 years old. It's it's absurd. He should not. No one should be that good at that age. But he is. He is, and um, yeah, we'll see what happens. But uh, look, like I said before, I appreciate you uh, you coming on and maybe. Once uh once Doncic is a bull, you can uh, jump back on a weekend starts uh parading around and talking about how this, this is the next title team. Yeah, well they got they gotta start losing. They gotta start losing or it's not gonna happen. <laughs> yeah, well, he's probably exactly he's right. probably going number one overall, if not number one, probably like two or three. So they gotta they uh they gotta deal Nico and they gotta start losing. Well, uh, the draft's back in uh, Chicago this season. Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe you know something similar to what happened in two thousand, and that can uh, can happen again. It's the ten year anniversary, I guess, of that one point seven percent chance turning oh, into Derrick Rose. So there you go. let's speak that into existence, uh, Bulls fans. So we'll see what Speaking happens. Speaking into but, uh, existence, Levar Ball style. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but uh, thanks again for joining me, Kev. Uh, I really appreciate it, man. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Cool. So I'll be back again next week, hopefully with some more news about Miritich. Well, hopefully, as we just sort of talked about then, that he has been traded and the Bulls can write this tank. But uh, I'll catch you all again next week.
I'm Amira Rose Davis, historian and co-host of the sports podcast, Burn It All Down. And now I'm hosting the new season of American Prodigy, all about Black girls in gymnastics. For the last 40 years, Black gymnasts have moved from the margins to the core of the sport and changed gymnastics along the way. Now they tell their stories. You'll meet trailblazers like Diane Durham, superstars like Jordan Childs, and everyone in between. Listen to American Prodigies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.